Hey, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 2. Um, I was going to tell you, if you want to, you can put a mark in Acts 4. That's the next page over, so you should be okay there. Um, and then in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So those are going to be the three passages we're going to kind of look to today. This is our final series in this um, sermon series that we've kind of opened this year up of uh, talking about what I'm, what I'm calling routine church as we look in Acts chapter 2 and, and look to see what is Luke's description of, of the early church. What do they look like? What do they do? Um, and, and what does that tell us about what we're supposed to be and who we're supposed to be? Uh, what's the biblical definition of church? And so uh, two weeks ago, this is kind of the thesis statement that I gave you. And we'll work through that really quickly because I know this is the third week in the row. I think I'll have a slide for that. But the thesis statement is this. The church is a spirit-filled group of people. So, so when Peter gives his sermon, you know, believe and, and receive the Holy Spirit. That, that the church is a place that should be filled with the Spirit. There's something that's significant that happens in, in our lives. The church is a spirit-filled group of people. Do I have a slide for this, Kelsey? I want to make sure. Ah, yeah, there we go. Perfect. I, sometimes I forget stuff like that. So I was scared I forgot that. Okay, the church is a spirit-filled group of people focused on Jesus um, so that we're all centered around this one thing. The unifying cause of the church is not a set of traditions. It's not religion. It's not a political party. The center point of the church is Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected for the forgiveness of our sins for whoever would put their faith in him. So we center around Jesus. We focus on him in a way that leads to a routine. This is that idea that we talked about in Acts 2.42, this devotion. We, we devote ourselves, and there's four things that, the, that Luke says. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and prayer. And we took that last week to talk about this routine, learning about God, learning about who God is. What are the implications of this gospel? What does it mean for us? How do we apply it? Uh, and, and we spend the rest of our lives talking about that. So if that's something you find boring right now, I'm sorry. you got a, you got a long time to go as you learn about stuff like this, because I do as well. Um, but then also through fellowship and breaking of bread, through life together. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And then the end of Acts chapter 2, verse 47, that God adds to them. So as they're doing all of this, they're impacting their community. So this church is a spirit-filled group of people focused on Jesus in a way which leads to a routine learning about God and a routine living together, which results in community impact. That's what we're trying to do as First Baptist Church of Fortalis. That's who, who we're trying to be. And so today we're going to look in to detail about this whole concept of just living life together. And Have you ever noticed how like just experiencing things with people tends to make things better. And, and you may very well be like the most introverted person that's ever existed, but I still believe that there are just certain things in life that are just better experienced with other people. Like, it's like a seesaw. Like, seesaw's in no fun by yourself. You're, you're not going to do much. You're just going to sit there, right? Yeah, things are made to be experienced with each other. So uh, I think this is a story I may have even told a couple, maybe even a year ago. Um, but I, I grew up in Tennessee, uh, but even growing up in Tennessee, I never, I never went hunting. I grew up in a suburb of Nashville. It really, you know, yes, there were people with, like, trucks and cowboy boots, but they were, it's glam country. You guys know what glam country is? Like, they wear, like, bedazzled jeans. I don't know why it exists, but it, it's a thing for some reason. So I never went hunting. I, I was never a part of that. But when I moved to Socorro, our, our head deacon in Socorro was like, you have, if you're going to live in New Mexico, you have to hunt. That's just part of what it means, apparently, to, like, be a man living in New Mexico. I'm not, not sure so he got me to put in for a hunt, and I, I drew for an elk hunt. And he's like, great, we're, I'm going to take you on an elk hunt. And it was like one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life. We got up early on a Saturday morning. We, we drove for about two hours. We got out to this kind of mountaintop, got out of the car. We walked around for two or three hours. He said, there's the elk, shoot it. I shot it, and he said, I'll come back and get it in the morning. And that was like, that was my hunting trip. It was great. It was so good. 
and like the next morning was Sunday, so I had to preach, and he was like, it's getting late, I'll just bring a four-wheeler out here, and I'll pick the whole thing up for you tomorrow, it's going to be below freezing tonight, it'll be fine, so that was my hunting experience, it was wonderful, I loved it, and I was like, man, hunting is the best thing, like everyone should hunt when you're like this, and this is where, if you'll remember, I've told this story for sure before, the next year, I was like, I'm just, I'm going to go hunt deer, I, I drew for a deer hunt, I decided I was going to go out and hunt, went by myself, um, and, and the whole story was, got my jeep stuck in a mountain, ran into a bear, um, just a bunch of stuff by myself, and it was horrible. It was snowing, and it was cold, and I was miserable. I had to climb to the very top of a mountain just to get cell phone service to call somebody to come help me, and I'm like, never again. I will never go hunting by myself at all. I'm just not, I'm not doing it, right? You guys had those types of experiences? Like, I never want to do this by myself, but with other people, it's a really good thing. You guys have, have things like that? Yeah, because I, I think God puts something inside of us that we want to share with other people. We want to spend life together in some form, form or fashion. Did you know um, psychologists have done studies, and they found that if you're ever like watching a funny TV show or a funny movie, when something significant happens, you will turn and make eye contact with the person in the room you care the most about. Right? You guys, have, you guys ever do this with your spouse? You're watching some TV show, something happens, and you guys just like turn and look at each other? Is that just something Haley and I do? Because that's something that like, happens on a regular basis. And it doesn't matter. It could be a room with 100 people. I will still go look straight to Haley, and she will be looking straight at me. It's just like this weird thing that we've established over the last eight years of our marriage. Why? Because, because we, we like that idea of sharing things together. There's something about it that we just enjoy life together. And I think if we take this biblical model for what church is supposed to be, what Luke is getting at is just, hey, guys, the church exists to live together. We, we, we exist to do life together. So, so Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together, and they held uh, all things in common. They sold their possessions and property, and they distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and uh, enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So yeah, so Luke says they devoted themselves to four things. We've talked about the apostles' teachings. We've talked about prayer. Uh, and then he gives this word, fellowship. That's going to be the big focus point. And he gives the word, breaking of bread. And so there's been a lot of debate about, is that communion? Is that just eating together? We need to remember is the way we're about to do communion today. It's, it's a great, wonderful way. This is not the way the early church did communion. They, they weren't just like, let's pass around the little shots of grape juice and small crackers. And that's so, so what we can take away from in 1 Corinthians when Paul's talking about this, he talks about a full-fledged meal that the church would get over to someone's house. They would have a giant kind of like feast meal together. And then a big portion of that meal would be uh, taking the Lord's Supper, would be remembering the night that Jesus broke bread and the night that Jesus took the cup and passed it around. And then they would do that as a part of their... So, so it's still this idea of community together, that, that there's unity in reflecting on what Jesus did because of what Jesus did. So I think when Luke says there's breaking bread, there's probably this implication of communion, but it may even be, and I think it is in a lot of ways, even more simple to just like, they, they were going over to each other's house for dinner sometimes. They play board games and have dinner, I don't know, right? That's, that's what they're doing. They're breaking bread from home to home. That's verse 46. And then they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now this is, right, I, I've been talking about this this whole week, this idea of, 
We have our sub-church culture words that we use in church and nowhere else. So we've talked about devotion uh, two weeks ago. Last week we talked about discipleship. Right? These are words that we just like, don't use in context outside of church world. Like, do you, have you guys ever been like, I really can't wait to fellowship with you later. It's a weird way of saying that, right? We don't, we don't use the word fellowship that way. And now we, we have a fellowship hall. And like we do it in a reflective way. Like that was a good fellowship the other day. But it's just a word we use, especially as Baptists, to be like, we had a meal together in the fellowship hall. That's, that's what fellowship means. Um, but the word has a little bit more connotation than just that. Because I think the tendency for us when we hear the word fellowship is uh, I've come to call it like it's just like a holy hanging out. Right? So February 13th, Haley and I are going to do a Super Bowl party over our house. Have you guys been to a Super Bowl party where they like cut the halftime show? Like, all right, everybody, we're going to do a devotional now so we make sure that this is a fellowship. And like that's the part that makes it just like a holy hanging out. But here's the thing. When the Bible uses this idea of fellowship, it's so much more than just that. It's not just this like let's get together and have a meal. It's not just this holy hanging out. Fellowship is, is what happens, yes, when two or more Christians get together and talk. But there's so much more going on here. And so, uh, look, look at verse 44. So 42, they dedicate themselves to fellowship. And then 44, now all the believers were, were together and they held everything in common. And so if you're someone that likes to take notes in your Bible, you can circle that word common and circle that word fellowship because in the Greek, they're the exact same word. Does anybody know what, what if you're in the Sunday school class, you can't answer because we talked about this this morning in my Sunday school. Anybody know what that word is? Koinonia. Have you guys heard the Greek word koinonia before? It's the word we translate fellowship. So the church exists to living together by, by, by koinonia or by sharing. That's what the, the word koinonia directly means is by sharing together and that they hold all things in common. And so when we start breaking down this word koinonia, you can go look elsewhere in scripture and find it even just translated sharing, uh, Philippians 3.10, Paul says, hey, I pray that I would share in the sufferings of Christ all the more. And you're like, Paul has a really weird prayer request. There's a whole sermon in that self right, right there. But it's, I, I pray for koinonia with God, that I would know Jesus in this way. And so it's this idea of, of sharing, holding things in common. Fellow, you're starting to see where it gets deeper than just like we hung out the other day, so we had a good fellowship. There's more going on under the surface. Here's kind of what I'm working with. Fellowship has this deep meaning of people connected to one another and sharing their, their life, sharing their stuff with this uncharacterized care not found anywhere else in the world. When we use fellowship, that's the depth that we're, we should be talking about when it comes to this biblical understanding. And in Luke's estimation, this is the, the, one of the main marks of a church, is that a, mark, a church would have a, a koinonia, a fellowship like this. So if we're supposed to live together, we, we live together by sharing. So, Luke, uh, Acts 2, 42 and 47, they devoted themselves to fellowship, and all the believers were together, and they held all things in common. Both, both of those words are koinonia. Our, our fellowship, our together, our sharing. Um, Luke, Luke describes this, this whole church having things in common, like involving people in, so attuned to one another that they're constantly looking for what does this person need and, and what do I have that I can help that person in their need. And, and it's just this church that, can, can you do that by coming to church once a week on a Sunday morning, sitting in a pew, listening to a sermon and going home? I don't think you can find koinonia in that sense. Because koinonia demands attuning yourself to the people around you. 
that you would notice when someone else is in need. And then you would see, God, how can I provide for that need? That's what koinonia is demanding. And this is a theme that Luke's going to follow. So, so jump over to chapter 4, verse, verse 32. Luke's going to, it's been three, three months or so. How many people are in the church? Do you guys remember over the last few weeks? At least 3,000, right? 3,100, a little bit more. And this has been a few months, and God's been adding. We, we might even be up there more than that. So he's going to come back in, and he's going to give a very similar kind of glimpse into the church. Verse, 30, uh, verse 32 is where I'm going to start, chapter 4. Now, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed any of his own possessions for his own, but instead they held everything in common. Can you guess what that word common is? It's koinonia. It's, it's, it's fellowship. They held these things together in fellowship. What is Luke highlighting? That the apostles are making disciples by teaching the gospel, and the people are looking for ways to share their, their time, their possessions, their life. They're looking for ways to do koinonia. Now, if you're anything like me, right, sometimes we read Acts 2 and Acts 4, and especially in, like, Western church, we just get a little bit uncomfortable. You guys ever, like, read this and just get a little bit uncomfortable? Because you may have heard people take stuff like this and be like, look at here, the Bible says communism. Like, we all should be communists according to Acts 2. And you're like, whoa, where did that come from? So, like, hit the brakes on that. There's something else that the Bible is trying to communicate in all of this. So we need to understand, like, what's the model that Luke is giving for, for this idea? Because the Bible's not endorsing that idea even a little bit. Luke Luke's never gives this picture of, hey, your stuff, my stuff. Like, God said it's my turn to drive your car. I mean, our car. Like, that's, that's not what God's getting at, and it's not the formula Luke's pointing out here. Pay careful attention to how Luke paints these stories. So, so chapter 2, verse 35, or 45, uh, and they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all had, as had need. So does that say, and they claimed other people's possessions and property as they needed? No, th- there's no point in this that someone's like walking in like, you have a pretty big house. I think I'll live here now. That's, that's not a part of this. Um, chapter 4, verse, verse 34. Um, it says, says this, for there was not a needy person among them because all of those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Does that say the apostles forced all those who owned houses to sell their houses? No. Sometimes what ends up happening is we totally mischaracterize what Luke's saying and we get this picture of like, look, the, the, the church is supposed to hold everything in common, so that means I can walk into anything in your house and I can like take that for myself. And there's even been churches that have done things of like, all right, everybody, this is what the Bible says. So like, pass forward your wallets and let's look at your bank statement and we'll tell you what you need to give. Is that what the apostles are doing? Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. This is, the the apostles are just simply saying, here's the gospel. And people are so intrinsically gripped by this gospel that they're looking around at everything they have and saying, what can I give to those people? It's it's self-motivated. The term I've, I've come to use with this is, this is selfish selflessness. So I'm looking to see what do I have that I might relinquish that for the sake of those around me. The pattern that Luke gives on this is, and this is, right, you guys have heard the JOY acronym, Jesus, others, yourself, right? That, it, that this is the pattern that Luke gives, that the focus starts on God, and it's this idea of look how much that God loves me, that he's displayed that love through the giving of himself, through sharing Jesus with it, through koinonia. And because God has done this for me, uh, man, I know that God has done this for the people in this church and the people in this community as well. And and I want to love that person as much as God loves that person. 
So then once I know that, I can look at, so what, what can I do? What do I have? What can I relinquish to help that person? If there's something that I have that I don't need, maybe I can find a way to provide for that. Right? This isn't some suggestion for a new form of government. And don't listen to anyone that would try to tell you otherwise on this. This is Luke's description of a church living together by koinonia. Right? This is the, not the idea of like, oh no, my, my TV remote broke. I'm just going to go steal yours. But it's like, oh no, my TV remote broke. And you're like, well, I have two remotes at home and this one will work for your TV, so just take it. That's what Luke's portraying in this. That we are attuned to one another and that we're looking to see, is there any need that I can provide for? How do I provide for that need? This is koinonia in the church. And here's the amazing thing, because it's not just here. This is something that when Paul's gonna start going and planting churches, Paul's gonna build this into the DNA of every single church he plants. So uh, if you have your Bibles, go, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So this is about 50 years, 50 years after Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4 is taking place. Pretty good amount of time. Um, in that 50 years, the church in Jerusalem, which is where Acts happens, um, th- what happens in this time is, is, number one, the heaviest part of persecution is still in Jerusalem. It's from the Jewish people onto these new believers in Christ. And, and because of that, there's been all this stuff that this church has lost out on. I mean, imagine, you know, the, the provider for the family being killed for what he believes. And all of a sudden, it's not like anyone else in the family can go out and start fishing because it's just a mom and her kids, and so they don't have any way of providing for themselves. And on top of that, there's a giant famine that hits Jerusalem at this time. And so Jerusalem, just in the last 50 years, they, they are struggling. And so Paul decides, well, I've, I've been around these different areas. I know that not every city is struggling this much, and I've planted these churches. Maybe I can reach out to these churches and, and do a fundraiser. That's what Paul's going to do. He's going to go from church to church. He's going to take up special offerings, and he's going to send that church back to Jerusalem. So in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, the, the Corinthians have said, hey, we'll, we'll give to that. And then either they just forgot to give or they didn't give. And so this is kind of Paul's, like, kicking the pants to the church in Corinth. Like, hey, you said you were going to give. They need your help. And so he's, he's going to explain to them why they should give, and he starts out by telling them a story of another church that's given. Chapter 8, verse, verse 1 says this, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During their severe trial, brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability, and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints. Would anyone like to guess what that word sharing is in the Greek? It's koinonia, yeah. Do do you see these connections lining out? This church in Macedonia, and this is a church that is just dirt poor. They have nothing. Like, it is dirt poor, and they're saying, Paul, let us participate with you in this fellowship. Why? Because they see this value of life together. And if it means that they get to help another church do life together, they want to help. This is what it means to live in fellowship with one another. It's not just a holy hanging out. It is, I am tied to you. You are tied to me. We need each other. This is the relationship that, that God is building in the church. And so here's, here's my point. This biblical understanding of fellowship is not just a, a holy hanging out. And please, don't, don't get me wrong. Hanging out, do, doing meals together is a necessary concept of koinonia. So, so much so that it would probably be worthwhile to note, like, When's the last time you've looked around the church and just thought, who, who could I invite over to my house for dinner this week? That, that's a part of it. 
And for some reason, I think the Western church has gotten more in the business of making church a business. So church becomes more about managing and administrating finances and personnel and building and schedules and the resources. And those things have to be done. And God gives people gifts to do those things. But if the church becomes a business to run and not a community to be a part of, we will not be successful as a church. We're just not going to be successful as a church. We can manage a lot of money and still fail to be successful as a church. So it's, it's a small little note, but I think it's one just worth mentioning here. You should consider being on the lookout from time to time for ways you can invite someone over to your house, ha- have a meal with that person, fellowship, koinonia, and maybe just as you come to church over the next few months and weeks, just this prayer, God, is there anyone in here that you would want me to invite over to my house this week or next week or set up a time that they could come do dinner and, and build this community together? And on the other hand, let me still say, if all we do is get together and watch football and do food, just be an Applebee's. Like, there's something significant about what we're doing and why we're doing it. To truly be a church the way God demands this constant, selfless lens where we're always looking to love others more than we love ourselves, whatever the cost is to have this unified connection that overcomes even the strongest and tallest of, of barriers, that's what it means to have koinonia. And I'm not sure if you know this or not, but, but let me just say, this is crazy. As this... This idea of community is ridiculous because you don't find this idea of community anywhere else in the world, okay? Right? I used this in Sunday school this morning. No one goes into an Applebee's like, hey, you're wearing the same football jersey I am. I'll sell my truck and give you some money if you want. We don't do that. That's silly. That's ridiculous. In fact, if anyone else in the world looked at it, they would say, dude, you are the dumbest person I've ever seen spend money. Like, Find a better way to do this. And yet Luke's going to come in and say, this is a normal thing in this place we call the church. This idea of koinonia is normal. And you know it's crazy. And I know it's crazy because every part of me wants to object to it. I want to come in and say, no, no, but, but what if they take advantage of what I give? What if I sacrifice and I give away and that person just takes the stuff and they run away with it? And this is where the gospel comes in and it Hits me like a truck every single time. Because the gospel is this declaration of Philip, it wasn't ever your stuff to begin with. Everything you have is a gift from God. And the gospel just gets all in our face and says, you want to worry about your stuff? Let me tell you whose stuff it really is. God is connected with you because he considered you more important than his own status. This is Philippians 2, that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of man. Then he subjected himself to death, even death on a cross, that God would give himself for us. So if you want to be connected with the people around you, then the gospel pleads you to rethink and redefine what you think of as yours. Luke understands that this behavior is not normal, so the question is, well, then why do they do it? If this isn't normal, what's, what's the cause of it? Jump back over to Acts chapter 2. We'll come back to 2 Corinthians one more time, but we're going to run through this again. Luke, Luke understands that all this behavior is not normal. There's, there's some sort of fuel that's going into this koinonia machine that's making it run. 
So Acts chapter 2, verse 47. They're praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So this first part, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. This word favor, we're going to do a little bit more Greek, is the Greek word charis. Right? You guys heard that? Anyone know anybody by the name charis? It's the Greek word for grace. So Luke is saying, hey, there's something within this group of people that they are all sharing in grace together. Okay? Go to Acts chapter 4. Acts Acts chapter 4. Paul's going to come in. Now the entire group, verse 32, of those who believed were of one heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions on his own, but instead they held everything in common with great power. The apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great what was on them? Grace. Chorus. The word chorus comes right back up again. Great grace is right there upon all of them. So what Luke is saying is that grace is the fuel that goes into the koinonia machine. You cannot have koinonia without grace. You will not have grace if you're not sharing in koinonia. Grace will result in koinonia. They they are tied together. This word grace in its most basic form, right, is just the the definition of gift, to, to give a gift. And so we usually use it in church to reference God's grace. And what's that, what's that story? How God, John 3, 16, gave his only son. It's the word gift. But, but Luke's going to say him and say, hey, it's not just God giving, but it's because that God gave grace that grace falls upon the church. And what does the church do? Starts to give to one another and share in koinonia. Grace is the means by which koinonia happens. Now check this out. Go, go back to 2 Corinthians 8. I know, you're flipping a lot. I'm sorry. I did tell you to mark the page, so, you know. Chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God. Paul is saying this church in Macedonia that's begging to participate in Koinonia, what is the fuel behind that? It's grace. That God has poured so much grace on them that they can't help but want to participate in this koinonia together. The church lives together by sharing gracefully. It's interesting because that's not always how we use the word grace. Because if I said, hey, let me, let me tell you a story of the story of grace. Usually what we have picture is like someone that gives their life to Jesus. And that is grace. It absolutely is. But Paul's going to take it right here and say, grace is also the means by which we can have koinonia. It's the means by which the Macedonians had koinonia. You jump down to verse 6. So we urge Titus that he is, uh, uh, just as he had begun, should also complete among you this act of grace. Right? Titus is the one that's bringing this letter. And Titus is about to walk around church after he gets read and say, hey, come on, we're going to take this back to Jerusalem. And he's going to encourage him. Verse 7. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of, there it is again, grace. It's just two in your face, right? And he takes it all to verse 9, and this is where we'll close out today. For you know grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Oh man, does that remind us of a story of something that happened 50 years prior, like in the book of Acts? That it's this whole church that's just looking for ways to give and donate and serve and live in koinonia together. This is what is all being connected together. 
You see, when you encounter God's grace, when you encounter that Jesus, who was rich, became poor for your sake so that in your poverty you might become rich, it, it will wipe away all of your sins, yes, but it will also connect you to people in an unimaginable way. Why? Because the spirit that takes up residence within you through the God who has divinely shared himself with you will lead you to share yourself with others. The biblical design for church is not something you go to. It is something you share in so that the church becomes a part of you and you become a part of the church. The church exists to create this routine life of living together where we share gracefully with one another. So, so what does this mean for you? Three, three kind of, I think, implications that I'm just going to give out, let you mull over it, we'll pray about it, and then we'll partake in celebrating all of this together, what, this thing we call koinonia. Number one, and this is kind of a redundant point, but I'm, being part of a church means being part of a church. I don't know how else to say that. And, and you know, we, we still kind of foster, and every church does this in a way, people that kind of come in, and you live as fly on the wall in the church for a little bit, you know, check out what all this is about, and that's great. You know, maybe you still don't know where you stand with God. You're trying to figure this all out. You're searching. We are so grateful that you would come and be a part of First Baptist Portalis today. But God didn't create you just to be a fly on the wall in the church. And it's not good for you to just be a fly on the wall in the church. God created you to live in Koinonia with a church. And maybe there's another home church that you live in Koinonia with already and you're here this morning. That's wonderful. Thanks for joining us. But if there's not, I, I would just challenge you. Being a part of a church means being a part of a church. And you need to start looking for ways to be a part of this church whether that's through ministry, whether that's through sharing, whether that's through whatever. And if you're saying, Philip, I, I want to, but I don't know how, talk to me, please. I, I would love, that is my favorite conversation when someone's like, hey, I want to do something, what can I do? You want to make me happy, ask me that. It's a wonderful question. So number one, being a part of a church means being a part of a church. Number two, you will only ever know koinonia by first knowing the grace of God. I might should have made that point number one, I'm not sure looking back. But you will only ever know koinonia by knowing the grace of God. It starts by knowing what Jesus did for you, that God himself came wrapped in flesh and died on a cross for your sins, that you might be restored no matter what you've done through putting your faith in Jesus. And if you want to know that grace, it is available right now this morning. God is inviting you with open arms and saying, my grace is sufficient for you if you would just make the statement and the step of faith to trust in it. And number, number three, last thing. Amazing things happen when ordinary people trust an extraordinary God. The church in Macedonia has nothing to give. Like, guys, they, they are dirt poor. That's Paul's whole point in 2 Corinthians 8. Like, they got nothing. And yet here we are 2,000 years later reading about what? That they begged for koinonia because of the grace of God. Now, Paul never says what they gave amount-wise, and I'd venture to say it probably wasn't much but yet it will resound through the halls of eternity. Why? Because the extraordinary God took an ordinary gift. Look, I'm not asking you to like do something extraordinary that's gonna be mind-boggling. What I'm saying is attune yourself to those around you and see what can I do to love them, serve them, and live in koinonia with them. So I want to give you a few minutes. I'm going to pray and give you a chance. If you want to come up and pray, you can pray with me. We've been doing uh, this whole thing this year where we celebrate our thing. We've moved that over here for Lord's Supper. If you want to move some marbles, you can come up during the invitation and do that in a prayer time.
Um, there's, there's a little bit of information about that. But, uh, but this is your time to reflect. And then once we finish that, we're going to take just a few minutes together and celebrate this koinonia we share because of the grace God has given. Father God, thank you for grace that you have given us what we don't deserve. When we've messed up this world, when we've broken and, and destroyed what you have created in perfection, you have still chosen to love us. And God, I pray that we would come to know that grace even more. And God, I pray that it would lead us into koinonia, into a sharing together that's so crazy, it's so ridiculous, it's so unthinkable that the only description that we could even give would be the description of what you have done. Thank you for that. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.